Thank you, musicians and choir, as you make your way down. Thank you for leading us to the throne this morning. We are so grateful and so thankful that he is alive. The best part of that song is that we're going to be there. Amen? My goodness, I just close my eyes and just imagine that moment. Praise the Lord. Let's get our Bibles out or iPads or Bible apps or whatever you've got and open to Acts chapter 16. We'll be in Acts 16 this morning. We are in part two of this series called Triad. It's our practice to uh, teach through books of the Bible. We're taking a break uh, right now, just finishing up the book of Nehemiah and we're going to spend a few weeks talking about these three distinctive areas. Uh, if we boil down the Christian life to uh, these three components, I believe these three components of uh, our walk with the Lord will make up a fruitful life in Christ. If you desire to be satisfied in your relationship with Christ and your uh, just in how you're experiencing the love of God and the usefulness and fruitfulness of being a child of God in the kingdom of God, then these are the three areas of our lives that we need to focus on. And I think that, as I said last week, oftentimes what happens is uh, we have a tendency, uh, and I mean we as in the church, uh, the Western church in the United States in particular, have a tendency to overcomplicate that which is so simple. I think these three areas are the critical components of what the Lord has called us to in fellowship with Him. And so, last week we started by saying the first part is life with Jesus. And today we're going to talk about life in community. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together in His Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we know and believe that it is true and inerrant, perfect in every way. It's meant for us, Lord, and we want You to know that we are not only grateful for this gift that You've given us, but Lord, that our hearts this morning desire to hear from you, Lord. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, that you might transform us more into the image of your glorious son, Jesus, that we might glorify you on this earth. In his name we pray, amen. Now we could begin this morning by asking the question, uh, am I who God wants me to be? This morning, if you ask yourself that question, are you, are you who God wants you to be? Are you today in this place the person that God wants you to be? Now, I ask that question knowing that most of us in this room can't answer that question. Because in order to answer that question, you have to ask a, an earlier question. You have to overcome and answer the question of, well, exactly who does God desire for me to be? If you don't know who God desires for you to be, then you have no idea if you are that person. And so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about life and community, and we're going to talk about who God desires for us to be. And if we want to know who God desires for us to be, we don't want to uh, ask uh, a pastor we don't want to ask our neighbor. We don't want to ask our Sunday school teacher. We don't want to ask anybody else. We want to ask God. We want to say, God, who do you want me to be? Because it's plain and simple right there in Scripture. 
And anyone who would attempt to answer that question, apart from opening the Bible and reading you the words of God, uh, I would not listen to nor trust. For example, I've been just consumed recently in my uh, personal time with the Lord in the book of John. Uh, I've just found myself just swimming through the pages of that gospel and just very much enjoying it. I love to study personally something that's totally different than that which I'm teaching on. Otherwise, I end up not really worshiping God personally, but then, you know, working at the same time. And I don't want to do that. I just want to spend time with the Lord. And as I've been in the Gospel of John, I've been just so amazed by the final chapters of John and how John devotes three chapters to all that happens uh, in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. There's so much detail about the end of Jesus' life and, and about the things that he said and the things that he did and the way in which he, he used and molded and crafted in these last moments to really set the course for what was going to be after his departure. And so he prays when he gets to John 17, the high priestly prayer, this amazing prayer. And I just want to look at two verses. They'll come up on the screen from John 17. As Jesus is praying to the Father, he's right on the doorstep of being crucified. He's, he knows that his time has come. And here's what he says. He prays for his disciples, and then he thanks God for them. And then he turns, he sort of shifts gears, and he says, But I do not pray for these alone. That it's not just these men that you've allowed me to spend my time with. But more than that, for those who will believe in me through their word. And then he says, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That Jesus prays for you and me in this moment. He prays for his disciples, and then he acknowledges the fact that as his disciples, they're going to share the words that he's given them. And through sharing those words, there's going to be another generation and another generation and another generation of believers that will follow. And Jesus prays that as those generations follow, his prayer is that they will be one and not just one. I mean, he doesn't just say, you know, I pray that they'd get along. I pray that they'd like each other. I pray that they would, you know, spend time together. I pray that he prays that we would be one like he and the Father are one. That, that our togetherness would emulate the intra-Trinitarian love, the perfect love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the Trinity. For example, remember Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative where the Bible says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. In other words, as you're reading Genesis, you realize right off the bat that God is a triune God, that there's three distinct persons that make up God. And God creates us in His image, but it's in their image at the same time. Now, you can't think about that too long or you'll get a headache and not hear anything else I say. But the point is, is that Jesus, when He prays for you, He prays that you would exist in some way where the things that you know about him would create belief 
in other people, and that as that happens, there would be this unity that is, that is supernatural. You'd have this togetherness, this oneness, like that of the Trinity, and that the world around us would know that we are His by this unity that grafts us together. So now you're beginning to get a picture of, well, who does God want us to be? Well, there it is right there. That's what Jesus prayed. He could have prayed anything. Think of all of the things he could have prayed, but he didn't pray those things. He prayed that we would exist in this amazing place where amazing things would happen. Now, here's the problem that we have. The problem that we have is that we're just not naturally sort of inclined to this sort of relationship. Uh, You can tell by the way we say things. We say things like, well, I have a personal relationship with God, which is true and good. But what we mean by that is that because my relationship is personal, it's oftentimes also private, which is absolutely unbiblical and absolutely against the very thing that God desires for us. You see, it does have to be personal to be authentic. But in being personal, it's intended to never be private. So it's personal, but it's never private. And a a private faith is some version of faith that is created uh, in the mind and heart of man because it is not from God. And so what I want us to do is I want us to go into Acts 16, but in order to get there, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that will come up on the screen from Philippians chapter 1. Now, in Philippians 1, you are, most of you are well aware that the Apostle Paul is writing from prison, and he's writing to the church at Philippi, this amazing place that he saw God do amazing things, these amazing group of believers that he loves so dearly. And here's what he says to them as he is penning this letter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Now, he says, verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So we've seen what Jesus prays. Now we're looking at what The Apostle Paul prays for the believers that have been born through his ministry. We see that what he does is he thanks God for the fellowship in the gospel. Now this word fellowship, maybe you have a translation that calls it partnership. It says for your partnership in the gospel. That word is the Greek word koinonia. It is the word that is, it's like fellowship on steroids. It's it's not, it's not just getting together, koinonia is a, is a unity that Jesus is referring to in John 17. This is what Paul's talking about, that there's this unity in the gospel. Koinonia, think of it as a deep sharing of something in common, but in such a way that it joins our lives together in one common endeavor. And it usually, almost always, has the common denominator of mutual sacrifice. You see, koinonia, this deep sharing of life together based around the gospel. These people in Philippi, Paul writes to as if if Jesus prays in John 17 and 
Paul comes along and becomes the ambassador to the Gentiles. And the prayer that Jesus prays, we get to see it carried out right through the Apostle Paul. Exactly how Jesus intended and exactly the way it's intended for me and you to be living our lives. So now let's look at Acts 16. The first thing I want us to see in Acts 16 is that true community, true community attracts outsiders with the gospel. You see, if we've got some fellowship, if we've got some unity, if we've got some community, but it doesn't attract outsiders with the gospel, it's not koinonia. It's some other togetherness. It's some other form of uh, relationship, but it's not what Jesus is talking about, and it's not what Paul is talking about. It's something other than that. So he's writing in Acts 16. It's Paul and Timothy They go to to Philippi, having been led by the Spirit of God. They were trying to go somewhere else, and the Spirit kept shutting the door. No, I want you to go here, 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 here. And they end up in this uh, far-out reaches of Macedonia in this place called Philippi, a very pagan place uh, where they end up preaching the gospel. Now, I want us to look at Acts 16. We'll begin in verse 13. We're going to watch this uh, transpire right before our very eyes. So they get to Philippi, verse 13. It's the Sabbath day, and Luke records that we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and we spoke to the, a woman that we met there. Now, why are they not in the synagogue on the Sabbath day? What this tells us is, is that there's not a synagogue. It tells us that this is not a place that is uh, filled with worship, but it's actually a pagan place. There's evidently not enough godly men here to have an assembly in a synagogue, and so they're out on the Sabbath day along the the riverbank, and they, they meet this woman there, verse 14. Now, there was a certain woman named Lydia, and she heard us. So they're having a Bible study, and this woman hears them, and she is a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Now, let's just talk about Lydia for a second, this lady. As Paul is teaching, she's listening, and then God gets a hold of her heart, and she becomes transformed by the gospel. Now, what we know about her is we know she's a wealthy woman. She's a seller of purple. That means that only the the very wealthiest of people could afford to wear purple. It was a very, very expensive process to make purple material. And so she uh, was like a fashionista, if you will, maybe a CEO in the fashion industry, a very wealthy woman. She evidently had a big house that had room to to house people, and so she was inviting them to come back. Now, she's from Thyatira. What does that tell us? That tells us that she's racially on the outside, that she's Asian. And so she's she's this Asian woman who's uh, been very successful in her business. She's made a lot of money. She lives in a big house. She overhears The Bible tells us she's a worshiper of God, so that tells us that she has become a Jew, but she's uh, apparently unsatisfied with her uh, Jewish religion, that there's something missing. And so she believes in the God of the Old Testament. She listens to Paul share the gospel, and she realizes, wait a minute, I am now like Paul used to be, 
And this one that he speaks of, it must be the one that the Old Testament talks about. And so she immediately leaps up and gives her life to Christ. And her and her household are baptized. And then she invites them to come and stay at her house. Now let's move on to the next divine appointment, Acts 16, verse 16. Now as that happened, we went on to prayer, and there was a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination that met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. Now, on the surface, you would think, well, this is a great thing. I mean, here's this uh, demon-possessed girl, apparently, but who's declaring this, the good news for Paul and Timothy and Luke as they're traveling around. But what's happening here is that she is causing confusion, that people are aligning what Paul is saying with what, what the, the, all the other gods and the gods she, she worships and all this uh, craziness that's going on in Philippi. And so she's sort of muddling up the, 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 the evangelism that they're attempting to do. And so the Bible says that Paul became greatly annoyed. Aren't you glad about that? I am. I'm so grateful. I, I just love that. See, right there when I'm reading the Bible, I just stop and smile. I say, thank you, Lord, for Paul. He gets annoyed. I'm so glad. And I probably shouldn't take delight in the fact that the apostle's annoyed, but it makes me very happy. It really makes me happy. And he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace of the authorities. So now what you have is uh, this demon-possessed girl who was... Uh, who was predicting the future, who was soothsaying, if you will. She's making money. She's like a carnival act. And so she's driving Paul and Silas crazy. He casts the demon out of her. But then suddenly she's well. She's healed. She's no longer tormented by this evil spirit. And so now she can't make them any money. And so what good is a slave... This slave girl, they probably paid a lot of money for her because of the potential she had to make them money, and now their income stream has just been shut off. Now, what do we know about this girl? Well, we don't know a lot. We don't know how she ended up a slave. We don't know if there's some mental illness involved in this uh, demon possession. Oftentimes there is, but not necessarily. We don't know. We don't know if her parents sold her into slavery. We don't know how all this happened. We just know that where she is right now is in a bad place. She's a mess. And that her life has certainly not gone according to uh, her plan, that's for sure. And she finds herself in a very hopeless, dark place. And suddenly she is free from all of that. And so we've got this, uh, this rich Asian woman who is a... Uh, a, a fashionista CEO. We've got this slave girl who was possessed by a demon. And then if we keep reading down to uh, verse 25 of Acts 16. So they're thrown into jail, uh, beaten severely because of uh, the complaints of uh, these masters, because of what they've done to her, their, their slave girl in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prison was shaken. 
And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now we we see this third divine appointment, this prison guard, this Roman prison guard. Now, what do we know about him? Well, more than likely, he was probably ex-military. That was the status quo. The Romans would uh, take men who were done with their military service and, and customarily make them uh, prison guards. We know that he was a very hard-hearted man because if you read the previous verses, you find out that uh, he received the charge to lock them up, but he took it upon himself to put them in stocks. And so they were actually chained up in stocks, so he was torturing Paul as he was holding him. And he'd already, Paul had already been beaten with many stripes, the Bible says. And so this man had no problem not only uh, supervising the prisoners, but he wasn't out for their well-being. He was certainly had no problem uh, causing harm and suffering. So what happened here in this little uh, amazing passage where suddenly there's an earthquake And it appears that they've left. Well, he had never seen anything like what he had seen from Paul and Silas. He'd never seen faith like this. He'd never seen people who were being tortured worship God. That was new to him. Now, surely he had had tortured or supervised many different people in his, we don't know how long he was a prison guard, but he had long enough to rise up to the rank that he was where he was making decisions and would be held accountable. So it was for some time. He wasn't new on the job. And so that would tell us that he has, I'm sure, tortured religious people before. And so it wouldn't have been new to hear people that were complaining about their circumstances who were religious people. It wouldn't have been new to him to to have religious people who were bitter at God because of what was going on as they were locked up in jail. See, all of those things would have been normal. But what's not normal is that people being tortured are praising God and worshiping God in the midst of this horrible situation. Who's singing and worshiping God after being beaten and now chained up in stocks? That will get your attention. And so when the doors fling open, he immediately knows he's going to be held accountable for everybody running out. And so he's going to kill himself. And Paul stops him and says, don't do yourself any harm. We're all, we're all here. Now look at verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And all who were in his house. And so now we see in this divine appointment number three that now this this Roman jailer has come to faith in Christ. So let's recap. We've got Lydia, this lady who pursued her own desires and achievements in the world, who was successful at that. She hears the gospel. She realizes that there's something more. There's something more valuable, more precious than all of her worldly treasure. 
We've got this slave girl. We don't know exactly uh, what happened with her other than what the Bible tells us. We know that she had to be somebody who felt hopeless. She had to feel like she was separated from God, that God would never love her or accept her because of all the things that were wrong with her and all the ways in which she had uh, just proven her life to be uh, unacceptable to religious people. But then she is freed by the very words of these men who are walking around teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so her life is turned upside down. So at the very least, what we do know about her is that for the first time, we could say, her life was filled with hope. Many Bible scholars don't believe that she would be placed between Lydia and the jailer had she not been right there with them and followed suit as a believer. But we know that she was filled with hope. And then we've got this prison guard, this man who is on the outside of the jail cell, supervising those on the inside, and yet he sees Paul on the inside of the cell, and he realizes that the ones who are incarcerated are actually the ones who are free, that he's on the outside, and he's the one who's really captive. And so you've got Lydia, a wealthy Asian woman, you've got a teenage girl who was demon-possessed, and you've got this hard-hearted Roman prison guard who tortures people for a living. That's your core group to start a church at Philippot. That doesn't seem like the most likely grouping of people to start a work. Well, I tell you what, you know, we've got these three wackos. Why don't we just get them together and start a Bible study, and let's just see what happens. I mean, I would think, well, maybe they'll kill each other. I mean, this may not be good. But when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, when Paul says that I pray for you daily and I thank God for the fellowship in the gospel that you have, this is who he's writing to. He's writing to this church from Acts 16. He's writing to these people who probably, when he writes the letter of Philippians, are meeting still in Lydia's house. And so he's he's saying, you have koinonia. You, rich Asian woman. You, former demon-possessed teenage girl. You, Roman, hard-hearted, torture master. You have koinonia together in the gospel. Now, How does this happen? Well, we know some things about the church at Philippi. We know that it was an extraordinary work of God. We know that it's the one church that Paul doesn't rebuke in the New Testament. They have one slight little division, but it's barely even a bump in the road. That all the other churches that Paul writes to, all of his epistles have stern correction. But not Philippians. This is an amazing church. It's the only church that gives generously. Go home this afternoon and read Philippians chapter 4. They give generously from their hearts, even sacrificially of what they don't have, for the propagation of the gospel that we might be here today. In some way, we are a a long-distant plant from, as a Gentile group of believers, from the church at Philippi. That all of this started with people like these three individuals. Which makes me start thinking about. Thinking about things like, well, do I remember what it was like when Jesus saved me? Do you remember that? 
Do you remember who you were and where you were when the Lord's grace and mercy found you? Do you remember how hopeless you were? Do you remember how broken you were? Do you remember how bored you were with worshiping yourself and chasing after things that were just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment? Do you remember that? I mean, maybe it was uh, a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. Maybe it was 50 years ago. But do you remember what it was like prior to salvation? Because that's a very important thing for us to remember. Because lest we begin to convince ourselves that we've sort of always had it together. As if we have it together now, which we don't. But we can pretend that we do. Remember, last week we talked about how the Bible teaches that we resemble that which we revere. And so whatever... Whatever idolatry we're engaged in, which is all, there's always an idol in every human heart at all times. We're always worshiping something. The question is, what are we worshiping? But if we're worshiping something, whatever that something is, we begin to look like that something. And when we talked about how broken it is, how, how, how off the gospel it is to be focused on yourself, to be the person that I was before God saved me, and the person that that most of us were before Jesus saved us. And we talked about how broken people like these three individuals we find in Acts 16 flocked to Jesus. They flocked to him. That the Bible tells us in Matthew that he was a friend to sinners. And why was he a friend to sinners? He was a friend of sinners because sinners loved to be with him and he loved to be with them. But he was their friend because they didn't stay the way they were when they got around him. That what, I, what you've got to see here is that each of these individuals in Acts 16, as they encounter the gospel, they're transformed into something new. You see, the Bible doesn't say that, that Paul and Silas just hung around with this, made friends with this prison guard and hung around with Lydia and, you know, got a few complimentary purple t-shirts or they just you know, hung around with this uh, demon-possessed girl because she was kind of amusing and she was trying to tell people's future. That's not what it says. That when they encountered the gospel, they changed. See, for years when I would have these conversations with young people, it would always astound me at how they had this, this uncanny ability to twist what the Bible's saying into what they wanted to hear. And so if I talked about Jesus being a friend of sinners, they would somehow walk away from that conversation thinking that, well, then that's good, so I can just hang around lost people because all my friends are lost, and I'm just going to hang around them, and I can do whatever I want, and I'm like Jesus. No, you're a moron. <laughs> that's the furthest thing from being like Jesus. They changed. That's why he's a friend because, believe me, they were so grateful no, no one encountered the gospel as transformed and then wants to go back to the way they were. No. The gospel transforms them into disciples of Jesus Christ. So we see that, first of all, true koinonia community, it attracts outsiders with the gospel. Now, secondly, true community reflects the gospel. It reflects the gospel. Now, I want you to look at these three individuals, and I want you to think with me for a moment. Here's three people who would never have become close apart from the gospel. 
They would never have had a relationship. They don't eat at the same restaurants. They don't live in the same neighborhood. They don't have the same hobbies. They don't listen to the same music. They have nothing in common. This Lydia and this slave girl and this Roman prison guard, they have nothing in common. They would not be together for any length of time in any amount of closeness apart from the gospel. It's the gospel that gives them koinonia together. Imagine as they're going to meet at Lydia's house. I mean, I don't know how many people were there that, that, that first day at Lydia's house, but I'm sure that as Paul was staying there, that it was people were coming to Christ on a daily basis, more people just like these three from all different walks of life, and they're coming together. And every week... You know, imagine what the people who lived in Philippi are thinking. And they're watching this uh, slave girl who used to go around ranting and raving about all sorts of crazy things. She's, you know, walking to Bible study. Meanwhile, you've got this, you know, big burly prison guard with his family walking to Bible study to go sit in this big fancy house where this wealthy lady Lydia lives, and they're going to have Bible study together. Isn't that odd? I mean, don't you think that uh, this slave girl is thinking, I've never been in a, in a house like this, that I wasn't s serving someone, but now I'm, I'm, I'm welcomed, I'm part of it. And then you've got, sitting next to her, you've got this prison guard who's thinking to himself, he's sitting next to this girl and he's going, I used to arrest people like her. And now I'm sitting in Bible study with her, with the rest of my family and all the other people that have come to Christ. And you ask yourself, how is this possible? It's possible because as rescued people relate to each other, they reflect the gospel in their community. It koinonia comes because what they have in common is nothing apart from they've been rescued. That's what they have in common. It's no other, there's no other commonality. And now they find themselves together as this people sort of, Having once, you see, they're, they're, they used to relate to their surroundings. Don't you know that each of them had their own lives prior to their encounter with the gospel? They had friends. They had relationships. They had even the slave girl. She had, there were probably other slaves that she knew. She, she went home to the same house every day. She served the same masters. She sort of had a routine she was comfortable in before everything got turned upside down. And now... They're in this entirely new context together trying to relate to the world around them. And as I was sitting in my office on Friday and I'm talking to Matt and Amanda and I'm thinking about uh, the things that they're telling me about what it's like to plant your life amongst a, a people like the Lakota Sioux to where one day uh, they're in suburban Atlanta somewhere living a normal life, as it will, doing uh, normal things. And somewhere along the way, uh, God gets a hold of their heart, gives them a burden for these people. There's this, I, I wasn't there, I don't know. I'm sure there was somewhere along the way, there was this awkward conversation. You know, mom and dad, we've got an announcement. And they're all excited like, is it a boy or girl? We're moving to the Lakota Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. You're what? You're, you're doing what with my grandchildren? You're going where? You're, well, how is this going to work? And even if, imagine when they first went up there. 
you know, they, 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 these, these Caucasians walking into this uh, uh, arena that they're, they're, they're not accepted, they're not trusted. The, the people there think, well, uh, you know, uh, you're just going to be here for a little while and then leave like everyone else. And then over time, over time, they just stay there. And the people begin to realize, wait a minute, they really do care. They are genuine. They are real. And, and they see this, this koinonia amongst the believers, and they're drawn to that because it reflects the gospel. It, it reflects the gospel. That's what I was thinking about when I saw all those smiles. I was like, that's what happens when koinonia comes along. You begin to reflect the gospel. You see, think about your relationships. Think about the, relation, the people that are in your life, in your inner circle right now. What is it that binds you together? Most people are in relationships with people based on affinity or commonality. In other words, we're together because our kids play on the same sports team, so we became friends, or maybe they go to the same school, or maybe we work together, or maybe we live in the same neighborhood, and so we're, we have a relationship. You see, the problem with that, there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem with that is, is that all of those are fluid situations. You see, what happens when your kid no longer plays sports? What happens when you change jobs or move neighborhoods? What happens when your kids switch schools? All of us have tons of memories of people we were once close to, but then our circumstance changed, and it just we didn't have like a big falling out. We just drifted apart because our, our affinity, our commonality fizzled out. That's not koinonia. You understand? Koinonia is when the gospel is our affinity, when the gospel is our commonality. And guess what? That never changes. That's the difference between this sort of community and the, the way we oftentimes want to convince ourselves that community is. We, we like to think that, well, you know, I'm, I'm having good community. Well, is it koinonia? Because if it's not, it's not the fellowship and the gospel that Jesus prayed that you would have. It's not the fellowship in the gospel that Paul prayed that you would have. It's not the fellowship in the gospel that the early believers in Philippi gave money so that you would have. It wasn't, it's not that. It's just friendships. It's just relationships. It's just something being together. Koinonia. It's deeper than a hobby. It's deeper than proximity. I mean, I have koinonia with people all over the world. They're all over the place. That I can't physically reach out and touch them sometimes not at all, sometimes only a couple times a year. And yet there, just think a couple weeks ago for Easter, there were several families that traveled great distances to be here on Easter Sunday morning with us. Now they're involved in churches where they live. But Weeks and weeks in advance, I started getting emails and messages. Hey, we're coming in town, and, you know, we're going to stay with so-and-so. And, you know, Lisa's like, hey, well, you can stay at our house. And, and the people coming in town just to be here with us, and they've been gone for a number of years. But there's this sweet fellowship, this koinonia, that when, that when if one of their children gets baptized while they're away, then I get a phone call, I get pictures, I, I, I try to be a part of that, I talk to their kids on the phone. 
that when there's, there's because we have this, they can move wherever they move. They can change any school, any job, any hobby, anything, but the gospel never changes. We're rescued together, and we will not be separated. We have koinonia. See, Paul uses the phrase koinonia in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about um, us getting together and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Why does he do that? Because if you think about it, you don't celebrate communion at your house. You don't celebrate communion alone. You celebrate communion together as a body. It's something that you do that unites us singularly around one thing, the fact that Jesus died to rescue us. And we do that together, and when we do that, we have koinonia in the gospel because we're together for this one binding purpose a group of people who otherwise would not have a relationship and wouldn't be friends i tell you this all the time if i wasn't saved you wouldn't like me and the feeling would be mutual it's the truth when i walked into church for the first time i mean i felt like the most out-of-place person who ever lived. I mean, it was more than my mullet. It was more than the fact that I looked different. It was that I was different. But when God saved me, He rescued me. He bound me together with other people who've been rescued. And that's what binds us together. So true community, it attracts outsiders, it reflects the gospel, and then thirdly, it matures us in the gospel. Now, how does this work? Well, if we go back to Philippians 1, this will come up on the screen. When Paul says he thanks God on every remembrance for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, look at what he goes on to say. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident, he says. So what, what happens here is that Paul equates fellowship in the gospel with this confidence that Jesus is going to complete the work that he's begun in us. That when we have koinonia, we are matured in the gospel by our togetherness. Now... How exactly does that work? Well, you have, to think about, you have to think about fellowship in the gospel. You have to think about koinonia as it's like spiritual fertilizer. That when you experience this amazing closeness with brothers and sisters in Christ, people that you are bound together simply by the fact that you've all been rescued, it is an amazing sort of process of us it, it broadens our horizons. It deepens our understanding. It, it drives the greatness of God through the diversity of the people around us deeper and deeper into our hearts. Think about the, the giant sequoia tree. I think I put a picture up here of a lady standing by a tree. Now, just think about these trees that, that grow 300 feet tall. These enormous structures that just, just thrust up out of the ground. That will literally be 30, 35 feet in diameter. That people drive cars through. I mean, they're like these 
behemoths that are sort of left over from a, a world long gone. But yet they, they flourish, but not everywhere, only on the western slopes of the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains. They have been around. Many of these trees are estimated to be 1,500 to 2,000 years old, even older. That, that some of these trees were there when Jesus was walking around on the earth. These trees were there. And they're still there. And a 300-foot-tall sequoia tree weighs over 2 million pounds. So you think to yourself, what kind of root structure must a tree like that have to hold Two million pounds that's being blown back and forth by the storms through thousands of years. Think of all the weather events that have occurred in the last 2,000 years. And here these trees are still standing. But when you read about these trees, what you find is that their, their roots are some of the shallowest of all trees. That most of their roots never go deeper than four feet, and none of them go deeper than 12 feet into the ground. Now, how can a two million pound structure stand 300 feet up above the surface of the earth and be held up by a four foot deep root system? Because sequoia trees never grow alone, they only grow in groves. And their roots intertwine with the other trees. And they grow shallow, but they grow together. And the reason that they stand for thousands of years is because they're bound together by their root system. That they actually strengthen one another. That they are kind of like Christians. They're like you and me. That the storms of life will batter us and beat us and come upon us. But the way that we stand the test of time is by having koinonia together, by binding and weaving our lives together, we actually find the strength to be able to withstand. That if we were alone, we would be crushed under the pressure. But together we can do amazing things. And it's the same way. And how did the early Christians know this? How did they just intuitively sort this out? They must have known what Jesus prayed in John 17, because if you look in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the very first Christians, the Bible says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and koinonia. That what they did together, as the very first believers, they had koinonia in the gospel. Now, before we leave, we've got to make sure that we understand something very important. See, if we're not careful, right here, our hearts say, oh, I want that, I want that. I, I, want, to, I want to grow deep in relationships, and I, I want to be mature in Christ, and, I, and I, I want to reflect the gospel, and I want to attract, I mean, I, I want all those things. And I'm not saying that it would be bad to want them, but here's what I want to caution you with. Koinonia never exists, never, for selfish reasons. 
I really thought about this a long time. And I thought about how am I as your pastor going to stand here and tell you that desiring these good things that come from koinonia will actually prevent you from ever having koinonia. That yes, these byproducts are amazing and wonderful in every way and they are some of the greatest gifts that God has ever bestowed upon us. But at the same time, if you are seeking these things, you will not find koinonia. Whenever you have a conversation with someone, as I often do, and people come to me and they start talking to me about community. And whenever they start telling me about, you know, community and how they want this and they want that. And what you hear is, I want this and I want that and I, I, I. And that's why they don't have koinonia. Because koinonia doesn't work like that. You have to take a clue from the Apostle Paul. If you want to see how to have koinonia, just look at Acts 16 and it will show you exactly how you got to Philippians 1. See, Paul walks into this new place and he is focused on his reason for being there. And his reason for being there has nothing to do with himself. It has nothing to do with what he wants to do. And so... Well, how do we do this? How, how, how should you move forward in this? This is what I would recommend. Start by asking yourself, what breaks your heart that also breaks God's heart? What breaks your heart that also breaks the heart of God? Where is there this burden that is in you that is united with the burden that's in God? Does it bother you this morning that as we sit in this building and enjoy this time together and we'll have this amazing meal together after our Bible study time, does it bother you that thousands upon thousands of people within a 10-mile radius of this fellowship have no interest in coming to church and have no intention of waking up early to go to church for any reason? Does that bother you? And it's not because they can't find a church, because there's a church on every corner. That's not the problem. People are looking for a church where the people inside remember what it's like to be on the outside. You see, koinonia attracts outsiders with the gospel. Fellowship repels them. If, you, if, we're, if we're just some human-centered club or organization, then we just, all we're doing is pharisaically raising ourselves above other people. The, the, the koinonia that the gospel brings is something that draws people in from the outside. You know what won't reach the world out there? A bunch of hypocrites acting like they've got it all together. I mean, if you want to find satisfaction in your relationship with God, then you have to walk with Jesus. And if you're walking with Jesus, then you, you're walking where he's going. You're thinking like he's thinking. You're doing as he's doing. And many of you are doing that. And I praise God for that. And that's why we have the koinonia that we have. But understand something. If we're going to leave any sort of mark on this, in this lifetime for the gospel, it's only going to happen 
Because we together have koinonia in such a way that we are coming together as a people focused on meeting the needs of those around us, not on gaining what we can get out of it for ourselves. See, this is how, this is how the message propagates that drives me crazy. Church is for church people. I hate that. Because it, all that means is that Jesus is for church people. And that ain't who Jesus is for. Church is for Lydia's. Church is for demon-possessed teenage girls. Church is for prison guards who have a hard heart and tortured people in a former life. That's who church is for. That's who Jesus is for. So if you want koinonia, then here's my suggestion. To experience fellowship in the gospel, let someone's misery become your ministry. That you come into a relationship with people around you with the idea that someone else's misery is going to become your ministry. Do you know anybody? Do you know any Lydia's? Any people who are spiritual but they're unsatisfied with their spirituality? They're empty inside. They're searching for something deeper. Do you know any Lydia's? Do you work with them? Are there any slave girls that, that, that brush in and out of your life? Are there any slave girls that are, that are wandering around that you come in contact with who may appear on the outside to have it together, but the truth of the matter is the reason why they won't go to church is because of the shame and the guilt and the hopelessness of all the poor decisions in the past that have separated them from a bunch of people that act like they got it all together and dress up real fancy and, you know, sing together and do things together, but really are not interested in broken people. We can't become that. There's no, there's no satisfaction in living a life focused on ourselves. Do you know any hard-hearted prison guards? Do you know any, any guys who have just grown up hard? You know, they've just given their best years to hard things, and it's made them kind of ornery and kind of gristly. And you have to invest time. You have to sit with them and pour into them, and you can't just overlook them. Don't show God your plans. Show Him your hands. Say, God, I'm all in this thing. I'm all in this thing. That, Lord, you have given us a tremendous opportunity to live in koinonia together. But we have to be constantly reminded that this is not about us. It's not about us. That we're a group of people that have come together because we've been rescued. And while we're together, I'm not thinking about how my fellowship with you is going to benefit me. I'm thinking about how your struggles can be my ministry. How can God use me to speak into your life and to be a blessing to you and to help you and to walk with you and to care for you and to love you? And along the way, my life begins to reflect the gospel. Along the way, my, my life begins to be matured in the gospel. But you can't go into it with selfish motives. You cannot do that. There will be no koinonia 
and you will forever just kick against the goads and not find the satisfaction that you're looking for. See, God has positioned us, Michael Memorial. He's positioned us to do a lot of amazing things. And one of my jobs as your pastor is to make sure that we're continually reminded that as good as God is to us and all the amazing things that he allows us to be a part of, we're not done. We're not done. That there's more to God. There's more. There's sti- as long as there's Lydia's and slave girls and prison guards out there, then we have work to do. So let's, let's find someone's misery and let's make it our ministry. And just ask yourself this morning, what, what's preventing you from being the person that God prayed that you would be? What are you afraid of? What's holding you back? What keeps your, your mouth shut? What? All of these things that we experience together have got to be for the, the purpose of what it propels us to outside of these walls. It's not just for us. I pray every single week, God, please, please, never, ever, ever let me be a pastor of a church that just meets together. Please, Lord. I can't, I can't bear the thought of just meeting together. That every Sunday all we did was meet together. No. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be koinonia in the gospel. That's what makes life so rich and wonderful and full. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to have community in Jesus. Next week, we're going to pull all this together. And we're just going to have an amazing time together and celebrate what God has done and is doing and maybe will do in the days to come. But this morning, we have to respond to what God said to us today. What's holding us back? What's holding you this morning? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you walking with him? Is there some hurdle that you're just afraid of? Have you committed your life to Christ? Have you planted your life here? Have you followed the Lord in believer's baptism? Have you stepped up and and found a place to sow into? I mean, all of these things, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? What could possibly be more important? than pursuing becoming the person that God prayed that we would be. Let's stand and bow our heads. We'll